Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14th. Get tickets now. Hey, you guys. The uh, Other People podcast is seven years old. Can you believe that? On September 14th, this show turns seven years old. Thank you to everybody for listening and supporting this program over the past seven years. I appreciate it. If you would like to show some support, if you want to give the show a birthday present, you want to do that, say happy seventh birthday, you can do so at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Happy birthday to the podcast. Happy birthday. It's your birthday podcast. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Dude, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Hello, hey everybody. This is the Other People Podcast. I am Brad Listy. It's good to be with you. I'm here in Los Angeles, California. I have Lisa Locascio on the program today. Her debut novel is called Open Me. And it is available from Grove Press. It has been generating rave reviews and a lot of excitement from readers. It's one of the better debut novels of the year. Lisa's originally uh, from Chicago, suburban Chicago. We had a lot to talk about. It was fun. So very excited to share that with you. Lisa Lacasho, in just a moment, her novel once again is called Open Me. So uh, before I get there, I do want to read some mail. Also, I do, uh, once again, want to just acknowledge the podcast is seven years old. How about that? Seven years. It's gone fast. Judy, uh, a listener named Judy writes to me. Good morning, Brad. First off, are you going to read Fear by Bob Woodward? Secondly, I was thrilled to see Victoria Patterson on the podcast because I love her books. I was not thrilled that you hardly let her speak for herself, but kept interrupting her. 
to give your own political views. I do value your views, but I listen to the podcast because I usually love the way you draw out the authors and they become more real to me. They inspire me to keep writing. I don't think Victoria's new short story collection was addressed more than one brief mention in the discussion. And I think she had good things to say about being in a family who discounts her and her views. I wish she could have told us more about that and how it has impacted her writing. Third, Maggie Nelson. Now she is a talker and you are letting her talk. So you are more good than not. Love, Judy. So I'm going to, I guess, address this one by one. First, I don't think I'm going to read Fear by Bob Woodward. Maybe I will. I read enough about uh, Trump to get the gist. I don't know if I need to do a deep dive with Bob Woodward, but maybe I will. I don't know. Second, uh, I'm sorry regarding the Victoria Patterson episode. I think this is a valid criticism. You know, like globally, like not just with respect to this episode. I know that I'm capable of getting too worked up about politics and over-talking. I've also noticed lately that if I'm really tired when I'm doing an interview, I tend to talk more. And I think just generally, it's better if I'm doing less talking and more listening. And I think that applies not only to my role as the host of this show, but just in life in general, right? What did my grandmother used to say? You have two ears and one mouth, use them in roughly that proportion. I don't know if she's the one who invented that, but you know what I'm saying. So I really hope that Victoria didn't walk out of here like, my God, he would not shut up. (laughs) I just think that these conversations, uh, especially about politics, I just get too worked up. And then third, I'm I'm glad uh, that with Maggie Nelson, the opposite was the case, because I really am working at it. I'm working on pulling back a little bit. I think the only other instance that comes to mind in which I might overtalk is if I feel like uh, there is a, a, a nervousness or, or like a sense of uh, tension or unease in my guest or even in myself. You know, if I'm nervous, I might talk more. But sometimes I have a guest who I can feel is just getting warmed up or might be a little bit uncertain about being on, on the microphone or, you know what I'm saying? And so I try to kind of fill the void to get the conversation going. Anyway, thanks for listening, Judy. Thanks for taking the time to write. A listener named Jenny writes to me. She says, hi, Brad. My name is Jenny. I live in Michigan. I wanted to tell you that your interviews on the Other People podcast have provided some fodder to alleviate the current stagnant state of my mental life, especially your conversation with Lindsay Lee Johnson in episode 449, where she talks about the thinking slash writing space provided by Panera Bread. I currently work at a Panera Bread. You cannot get Coke there, only Pepsi, as far as I know. And while I do not mean to undermine the decency and legitimacy of the work that I perform or the services Panera Bread offers to other people and making them happy, my question is this. Do you have any advice for how to go from someone who works at a Panera to someone who can write there or possibly do both? I don't have a a degree in writing, a bachelor's or otherwise. And so that's daunting for me to contemplate. Is that something you recommend before even contemplating such a project as writing a whole book? I confess that I Googled how to publish a novel yesterday 
and the whole process seems like the kind of scary, expensive vortex that I do but don't want to contemplate getting sucked into for fear that my writing itself sucks and is not worth the effort of trying to peddle it to the remaining bastions of institutional literary legitimacy, especially considering the fact that I, and this is a key point, have not written a single word of the aforementioned dream book. But I can say that I finished Susan Henderson's The Flicker of Old Dreams recently, and that is the kind of book I hope I could write. One that provides a window into the lives of people who feel, but sometimes cannot speak, about what happens. Signed, Jenny. So this is a lovely letter. Thank you, Jenny. And I want to encourage you. I'm, I could be wrong, but I feel like you're a, a young person just starting out or close to it, like early 20s, late, te- uh, late teens. If I'm wrong, my apologies, but that's, that's my read on it. Whatever the case, uh, if you, I feel like you should try to write this book. I want to read a book written by somebody who works at Panera Bread. That's exactly what we need. And I'm not an expert by any stretch of the imagination. I have my own struggles with this, but you know, I, I do have uh, a pretty informed perspective by virtue of the fact that I host this show and have talked to hundreds of writers over the past seven years. And I, I don't think that you need to get a college degree to do this. I think what you need to do is take very seriously, first of all, your reading life, and second of all, uh, your writing practice, the time that you spend actually working on your writing. If you do those two things, then you can pull it off. It's not going to be easy, but if you're willing to put in the work, it's doable. So it's, you know, it's simple in theory, but difficult in practice. Read a lot. Read like a writer. Meaning, like, read deconstructively, pay attention to what you like and what you don't like, what works for you and what doesn't work for you, what you want to emulate and what you would like to avoid. And then make a time, this is what I would recommend, make a time that is non-negotiable, that uh, you never skip and use that time to write. Whether you're writing in Panera or you're writing at home or in a coffee shop, that would be, I think that would be my like uh, simple advice. But I encourage you. I think the, the mere fact that you took the time to write to me about this and that you've put this much thought into it indicates that you're serious about this. I I think people who are predisposed to doing this sort of thing, like you're going to be a writer no matter what you try to do. You can try all sorts, like what's the old uh, Lori Moore Moore story where she's talking about how how to figure out if you're a writer. It's like try to do basically everything else. And if you still can't not write, you know what I'm saying? I'm badly paraphrasing it, but it seems like you have the bug and I would encourage you to try and I would not let uh, a lack of a college degree stop you and I wouldn't let your place of employment stop you and I certainly wouldn't let some sort of fear of inadequacy or fear of how the publishing business or the, you know, the reading world would receive you stop you. I could give the same advice to myself, by the way. 
So thanks for listening, Jenny. Thank you for taking the time to write. I wish you uh, all the luck. Hey, folks, if you are a writer, if you're somebody who's struggling to write, if you're trying to write a book but failing, if you're failing to write a book but wishing you could, if you've written a book but you're not sure if it's any good and you need to make it better, all of the above, you know what I'm talking about? I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. This is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond. Steve has been a guest many times on this show. I actually spoke with him on this very podcast about this very book not too long ago. You should listen to it. Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow is based on three decades of Steve's career, writing, failing, and trying again. Richard Russo calls it one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. This is a book that debunks the well-meaning but misguided myths that can hold us back from writing our deepest and most truthful work. It employs the same radical empathy that Steve displayed as co-host with Cheryl Strayed on the Dear Sugars podcast, and it will help you generate new work. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond. Available from Zando. My guest today is Lisa Lacasho. Her debut novel is called Open Me. It is available now from Grove Press. So much fun meeting her and hanging out for a little while and talking. And I'm very pleased to share that conversation with you right now. Here she is, folks. This is Lisa Lacasho. I'm in the middle of a cross-country move, and I'm almost there. I to? live to Mendocino County. Wait, cross-country move? I lived in uh, Middletown, Connecticut for the last two years. Oh, you did? And so I've combined driving across the country with a book tour. Um, okay. And... Yeah, What's so. bringing you from Connecticut to Mendocino? So I, I lived in L.A. because I did my Ph.D. at USC. And uh, out of that, I got a two-year job as a visiting professor at Wesleyan University. Um, so I moved there, and then uh, it ended. And now Ph.D. I'm, in what? Creative writing and oh, literature. Oh, okay. Cool. Um, and now I am going to be the executive director of the Mendocino Coast Writers Conference. Wow. And um, I'll be teaching at the, the one institution of higher learning in Mendocino County, Mendocino College. That's awesome. Yeah. That seems like a plum job. I'm delighted. Um, I mean, Mendocino is like beautiful part. I mean, it's on fire, I guess. But other than that. <laughs> luckily, I mean, luckily I'll be living on the coast, which has been less fire um, inclined. But yeah, I mean, I have a long history with the place and I feel really lucky about it. it Wait, you have a long history of Mendocino, with Mendocino yeah. County? Yeah. Why? Um, I went there for the first time in 2011, just driving through on a vacation and I was really taken with it. So I sought out a way to go back and I found the conference and I went back as a student in 2012 and they brought me back as faculty in 2015 and 2017. And then they offered me the job and my partner is from there, and so I've been lucky to spend like big swaths of time up there. But my my history with the place precedes our relationship, so it wow. just is all kind of magical. Perfect. Um, yeah. It's fate. Yeah, yeah. It's it, it feels really nice. I've been um, runner up for eleven tenure track jobs in the last five years, uh. so I'm really excited to go and live there. But it is two. I'll be combining two part time positions without like um, benefits, so that's not the best. I know that um, drill. It's hard. Yeah. But Benefits I do. For healthcare. I mean, uh, we could spend a whole hour yeah. listening to me <laughs> bitch about healthcare, but it's the worst. Yeah. I mean, 
I've been really lucky because I've always had health insurance through school and then I had this very plum job. Um, but I really miss the West Coast and I really wanted to come back. And it is my dream to live in Mendo. Um, I just twice this past year was like a near miss at like a full time job there, which, you know, California Community College professors are actually paid like far better than professors at, um, you know, entry level professors at Wesleyan or UCLA or USC. Really? Yeah. Well, I shouldn't speak for UCLA because they too are a state school, but California still pays its higher level educators well. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I was an adjunct uh, at Santa Monica College for five years. Oh, cool. It was it was great. I mean, I enjoyed the teaching and the students and the colleagues and everything, but the pay was freaking awful. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Adjuncting I, is notoriously bad. I'm going to be an adjunct, and it is sharp. Yeah. So it's sharp. Uh, change um but you'll put you'll be there you'll be rooted in the community and then over time hopefully if a tenure track job opens up you'll be you'll be there yeah i mean it's an interesting moment because part of me is like and if i had gotten one of those full-time jobs i would feel more grounded in this i was like i just want to settle i I mean it's it's one of the last places in california that i could imagine it being like realistic to maybe buy a house and like it seems like a very nice place to have raised children um but it's also really hard to do any of those things without, you know, at least one member of the household having like a salary and benefits. Um, so I, it could just be for this year, which would be cool. And then maybe I get a job somewhere else. I'm, I don't feel like I'm going to be moving back to the East Coast. Like I'm, I'm not, I'm almost 34 and I'm just not interested in getting a gig for two or three years in like Jersey or something because I feel really lucky to love california and to be i love california too i like when people like it out here i love it so much i when i started the phd i met all these people who like hated la and i was like i don't know what the fuck is wrong with all of you like i was thinking this morning i was uh taking my dog for a walk and i was like la is best city in the country yeah i was feeling like proud of la but la is so wonderful i mean i'm from chicago and i have a lot of love for chicago um chicago and la remind me of each other in certain ways they both are like sprawling cities of neighborhoods um just as New York and San Francisco have a lot in common. Um, But, you know, I lived in New York for six years. I did my first two degrees there. And the whole time I lived there, I just had this kind of weird sadness. Like, it wasn't depression. It was just kind of like this skein that lay over everything. And I really thought that that was just like what adulthood was. And I mean, (laughs) to a certain extent, isn't it? But the day I moved to L.A., I remember getting off the plane and it like lifted off me. Huh. And I always think about that. Is I it mean, weather? Is it sun? Is it? It's definitely partially that. I also just always found the pace of life here a lot more humane than in New York. Um, the natural beauty is still really overwhelming. And it's expanded to be like the whole state of California. Like I've been lucky to come back and spend a lot of time in L.A. since I moved. And I can, I'm excited to, to be in Mendocino. And I think that, you know, there's a very special sort of witchy resonance with that place. Um, that I'm excited to be in. Good um, for you. Place matters. Like, and, and like the thing is, it's like, you know, yeah. it's different strokes for different folks. Like some people love to be in cold weather climates yeah. or in like, you know, Gotham like metropolises yeah. or gray weather, whatever it is. Um, but if you're in a place that doesn't feel right, that's not good. And maybe like, you know, all of the details or all of the boxes are not ticked with this move to Mendocino quite yet, but at least you're in a place where you want to be. I mean, I also feel like they wanted me, which is really important. Yeah. And like, it's the weird thing. I mean, 
I love to travel and I like weird adventures. So that part of being somebody with a PhD who goes up for these jobs, that part I like, like where you get flown out to someplace you would never go otherwise and stay in like a Hampton Inn and Suites and like discover the many weird, weird free foods that hotels have on offer. Yeah. Um, and I don't even really mind the performance part where you put on this big show for two or three days about why you would be perfect for this job. But the thing that's hard is I don't know how to do that without investing in it and really actually engaging in the fantasy that I'm going to go and live there. And sometimes it's a relief not to get the job because I have done a couple of these where I have like a nervous system reaction to a place and I'm like, I really don't want to live here. Um, like where? Can you say? <sighs> I had a not great reaction to well, I everyone I've everyone I've dealt with has been lovely. So I'll well, there's actually an exception to that too. But um, I'll say a small liberal arts college in um, in Memphis. Um, I I shouldn't. I shouldn't place so much weight on the steak, but they took me out for dinner and the steak was really like spongy. And I always remember like, how is it possible for a steak to be spongy? That's not <laughs> Memphis's fault. I mean, there's all sorts of weird things. Just because... ruined the entire city for you. Well, because I was anticipating, I don't know. I mean, this is such a hipster thing to say, but I love Mystery Train, the Jarmusch movie. And so I was kind of thinking of like that Memphis. And I was, in, it was just like all of these old blues clubs that have been, you know, bought up by multinationals and turned into tourist attractions which is okay not that i went into any of them because it was just one day it also okay so one thing i should say is it has a lot to do with how they set up your visit that one they flew me in i got in at like eleven thirty or later and then at 7 a.m i was like up and it was all day and then i had to leave the next morning at 7 a.m whereas i've done many many more nicely organized ones where they give you some downtime maybe you even like get to get in the night before and time to have dinner by yourself so um but yeah, it's also you. I mean, I didn't. I had a job interview in Tulsa, and I had never been there. And I kind of thought Tulsa would be a nightmare, and it was actually a really, really nice city. Oh, really? Um, what they told me was that the uh, fracking billionaires are liberals in Tulsa, so they've spent all of their like ill-gotten gains on a ballet and a beautiful <laughs> museum and Just fracking money. Um, and you know, it's weird because I grew up in Chicago, and then I lived in New York and L.A. So. I've never been, and I'm, and I'm a creative writer, so I've never been someone who's been in a position to like think about buying property. But some of these places, it's like if you got this job that was maybe for life and at least for a couple of years, you would buy a house. I mean, Tulsa at the time was the cheapest real estate market in the country. And I was so going to say, just, it's, the cost of living's got to be great in Tulsa. Yeah. So it's pretty surreal because they give you like a real estate tour and... Um, no, you know, my experience in Memphis, the person who gave the real estate tour was actually the department administrator. And it was just kind of uncomfortable because she was driving me around neighborhoods where she thought that I would live. But there was like a class difference between her and the professors. And I felt like it was a little gross um, that they would have her do that. Um, and then other than the neighborhoods, there was a giant white pyramid, which is the biggest bass pro shop in the United States. And, they and it's been, a pyramid? It's a pyramid. And okay. they had been in a big fight with the city about how big of a bass they were going to be allowed to put on the side of the pyramid. <laughs> Tons of problems. I said, like, so what do you like to do? And she was like, well, there's a riverboat casino three hours away and sometimes comedians come there. And, you know, I mean, I don't need there to be like a of the moment, you know, 
review uh, up to my specific standards on the end of the corner every night. But that was like a pretty terrifying vision. I was going to say, that's a lot of work just to go see like, you know, some comedian. Yeah. But uh, I don't know. I, I, I sometimes can play that game with myself where I'm like, should I just pack up, move somewhere really cheap, some college town like yeah. Tulsa, like middle of the country, not as much going on culturally, not as much diversity slash zero in some cases, right. you know, depending on where you go. And I never have been able to, to do it. And, you know, there are a lot of parts of living in a big city that are uh, onerous. Yeah. You know, it's not like it's perfect to live in LA. There's a lot of, there's a lot of bullshit that you deal with, like traffic and pollution and crime. And I mean, you know, it's like city living, but I, I don't know. I can't think of where else to go. And I'm all, I'm almost troubled by the lack of options yeah like there aren't that many places that i actually want to live yeah i mean i think the silver lining of all of this up and down and i mean like in february i was a finalist for a job at the university of hawaii and so they flew me to honolulu from central connecticut for three days and that was like i mean that was like taking some kind of weird drug god you've Um, been through it because you're imagining every one of these trips you're like imagining your life that's an emotional process yeah and and so and unfortunately i mean every time i'm like all right i'm gonna like disconnect i'm not gonna attach to the outcome here but you just can't do it i know Um, i get it like best case scenario, you you actually really want to get the job because the times when I've been like, oh no, what happens if I get this job? That's that's not good either. No. Um, but how it, do you know that you're the runner up? They tell you. Well, there are they. I you can't ask who gets the job, although there are wikis for these things that are crowdsourced. So often you figure out. Although sometimes you don't. Sometimes they don't make a hire. But um, there's always only two, three, or four finalist candidates. Because right. to get to that stage, I mean, in the fall, they put up the postings for the jobs and that the posting, the application is like 40 to 100 pages. And then they make a, a cut of maybe 10 to 15 finalists who either do Skype or phone interviews or go to a conference that is in the first weekend in January, which, you know, no one, no one really wants to do. Um, I mean, again, if any committees are listening, I am delighted to be considered. I don't think that I'm I'm telling any stories out of school about the arduousness of the academic hiring process. And then following that, if you proceed from that level, then you get a flyout interview, which can be anywhere from January to, I mean, I actually had one like less than a month ago, which was crazily late. Um, it happens. Yeah. Okay. So you're from Chicago. I'm from Chicago. What part of Chicago? Chicago. I'm from. I'm from Milwaukee. You know that. Oh no, I didn't know that. That's where I was. That's so cool. I lost the the Wisconsin years ago because we moved to Indiana. One of my best friends is from Milwaukee. He grew up in Whitefish Bay. I grew up in Cedarburg. Cool. Yeah. Little like kind of idyllic little like. I like I like Milwaukee a lot. I think it's a cool city. I have good memories, and I spent a little bit of time there a couple of years ago. But I feel like it's one of those American cities that. affordable got some culture yeah good beautiful people. art museum and it's also kind of like a beautiful state yeah it's gorgeous up very there. beautiful yeah we we spent more time in michigan than wisconsin when i was growing up but i've definitely done some time in the sconce so um, what, what where in chicago are you from i grew up in the town of river forest which is basically the same town as oak park which is a famous Ernest Hemingway. Park. yes hemingway went to my high school Did um, he? yeah what high school? Oak Park, Oak Park River Forest High School. Wow. Is, um, there, is there like any kind of like monument to him there? We have a uh, wall of fame. Uh-huh. Um, 
and he and his sister are both on there. Um, the high school's produced a lot of important and interesting people. And like it was who? a really great high school. Um, Dan Castellaneta, the voice of Homer Simpson. Oh. Um, a prima ballerina of the New York City Ballet whose name is escaping me. She has a Greek surname. Um, God, there's a lot more people. The first African-American Miss America. Is that is that Vanessa Williams or no? I, I might be know. wrong. I'm not up to my, um, I'm not up to speed on my Miss America history. <laughs> Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio, the actress. Uh-huh. Um, what about Vince Vaughn? Is he from there? No. No. Okay. No, he's not from Oak Park. Um, the actor John Mahoney, who was on Frasier, used to be he just died. my neighbor. Yeah. He was your neighbor. Yeah, he was like not next door, but like within blocks of my home. No shit. He lived um, in Chicago like as a working actor. I think so. Yeah. I huh. don't. I shouldn't. I shouldn't speak necessarily uh, to his biography, but, you know, Chicago has a pretty thriving theater community. Tracy Letts is probably the most famous playwright director to come out of there recently and um, produces a lot of actors who go on to a lot of comedy. Yeah. Second City. Right. Um, Yeah. I mean, I had a completely idyllic childhood in terms of loving where I grew up, um, having really good, committed, devoted parents and a parents wonderful are little sister. My parents are still together. My parents have been married for 35 years. What about um, siblings? How many? I have one little sister. One She's four and a half years younger than me. Okay. So just like a good all-American Midwestern yeah. upbringing. Yeah. My parents actually, um, I was just in Chicago and I did a book event there and uh, that event and the release day of the book all fell on the same day as the closing on the sale of my childhood home to its oh. new owner. So it was... A tsunami of emotion. Okay, so I was thinking about this because uh, I don't know what. Maybe I was thinking about my own children and having this desire to like. It's, I want them to have like a sense of rootedness. I think that's natural. Yeah. And yet I moved around a lot as a kid, so like I said goodbye to my first childhood home when I was eleven. Wow. And it, it was hard. Like, yeah. It was like yeah. traumatic. You know, they, all of a sudden, like your world just gets erased. You move right. out of town, and like yeah. it's bye to your life. And uh, it's not an exaggeration. Like I think. I feel like moving as an existential experience for children in particular is uh, not talked about enough. My my mom had an extraordinarily peripatetic childhood, and I think that that's a big part of why my sister and I had such a settled one. Um, My dad had a much more sort of classically settled childhood. He was the child of first-generation Sicilian-Americans on the south side of Chicago. Um, But my mom, my grandparents married and divorced each other twice before my mom was 10 years old. So, um, yeah, she grew up in Chicago, New York City, Westport, Connecticut, Paris, France, and San Antonio, Texas. What's Um, her ethnicity? Like, where does she, like, what's the... My mom's family are... um, white people who were descended from Scots-Irish immigrants to South Carolina in um, the 17th century. And we have like a really, really deep tradition of genealogy on that side of the family. So I can well, trace I my that, lineage that's back. Very, that's a very specific answer. I was just like, I was expecting you to be like, yeah, we're Irish, you know. Yeah, no, I mean, um, the the family name is Goldfinch and also Witherspoon. And, um, that sounds fancy, I gotta say. They were not fancy. Were they, they on were the Mayflower? His, like what, like they, they were not on the Mayflower because okay. they were Scots-Irish people. Um, I actually had a wonderful graduate student uh, when I taught in the graduate program at Mount St. Mary's here in L.A. Um, who was writing and probably is still writing, I hope. Mike Chilinski, a great photographer, too. Um this wild creative nonfiction about the history of Scots-Irish migration and its 
sort of impact on American music through people like Hank Williams and Kurt Cobain, because the Scots-Irish were seen as culturally distinct and and less. I mean, they were kind of the forebears of people we consider white trash. Um, I'm Scots. I have some Scots-Irish. Yeah. And they were, the women were considered like very like sexually like open and um but they had a really strong history of both music and art and the second sight and different sort of spiritual experiences um speaking in tongues is that scots irish i mean i don't know if i could say it's explicitly scots irish but certainly many many descendants of scots irish immigrants became members of christian sects that engaged yeah. in ecstatic experiences like speaking in tongues um my mom's family were um preachers and teachers for the most part um and on my on my grandmother's side the maternal line before the civil war um you know something that i sort of contend with and have to acknowledge is that they were slave owners um so i you know i don't know this for sure but knowing my family because my parents are from louisiana I have to believe that I have ancestors who were at least part of the Confederacy. Yeah. I don't know if they were property owners, you know, but that's a, I feel personally, uh, a sense of like real disturbance at, like, I, I think about my blood. I'm like, Oh, like, you know, like I feel, I feel toxic in a weird way. Like thinking about that, even though it's like nothing to do with my life or like my immediate life, you know? Well, you know, I think it's interesting. Um, it's funny that we're talking about this because my, uh, so in the wake of selling the house, the new owners of my childhood home told my parents that they had read a book that the first child who grew up in our house had written, which we were not, you know, they, we lived there for over 30 years and we didn't know this book existed. Um, we were aware that there, the house had only one previous owner who was a woman um, whose father had built the house for her as a wedding present and that we knew that her husband either died or left and that she raised a daughter there and then lived there alone for most of her life. Her daughter, I suppose, uh, grew up to be this woman named Diana Stone, who was an astrologer in uh, the Pacific Northwest in Colorado. And she wrote this book called Spiritual Democracies, in which she details growing up in the house with her mother, who had terrible postpartum depression and was kind of experimented upon by doctors attempting to treat her her father left when she was two and after her grandfather who seems to have been like the last benevolent presence in her life died she and her mother were at the mercy of her uncle who abused her who sexually abused her uh and would do things like hide in the house and jump out and scare her oh, and god my mom just told me this yesterday and i've been thinking Maybe about it's good it. that you sold it. <laughs> well i mean it's funny because i always had a weird um I'm I'm kind of a scaredy cat. Like I was, I never like being alone in the house, even though I also really loved it. But we had what, what, what kind of house? Like, give me paint a picture. Like, is um, it one of these so old oak park? Like, it's a beautiful um, land and stone house with a courtyard in front, a walled courtyard, a two car garage, um, and a circular driveway. In the half moon, my parents pan planted magnolia and dogwood trees and a big backyard. Um, I mean, we had an unambiguously like joyous and beautiful family life there. Um, my mom was talking about how she felt like our life there must have neutralized some of the energies of the house. And I don't want to suggest that I was being haunted by this, but to speak to the question of, you know, having families that were owners of enslaved people, I don't think that there is any place, particularly not in the United States, where we get away from that bloody history of oppression. Um, 
I think I think I think uh, reparations are a good idea. Like, they, yeah. did you read that essay by Tennessee yeah. Coates? Yeah. Like that to me makes the most sense. Like, how do you ever Absolutely. how do you ever put it to rest unless you do something tangible? Um, like, you make a grand gesture. It makes to me it seems like totally logical and correct. Do you know the poet Laylee Long Soldier? No. Um, she has won many awards for her incredible book Whereas, um, and. A lot of it is written in conversation with the language of the so-called treaties that the American government made with the indigenous tribes of the United States. Um, And she engages with this apology that President Obama uh, presented and signed that was the first apology ever offered by the U.S. government and was utterly like toothless and offensive because of they had, you know, at the last minute taken out the one clause that would have made it at all meaningful, if, if still only a gesture. She came to Wesleyan to speak, and I got to meet her. Um, I think a lot of the sort of turmoil that we're experiencing right now is just the recognition of how unpaybackable the debts that are owed to these people whose you know communities have been systematically destroyed over the course of generations are. And it's, yeah, it's, we're on stolen land. Reparations would be the least of it, right? I mean, Mendocino County, where I'm about to move, which is a pretty in my experience, idyllic, beautiful, you know, northern Cal- rural Northern California coastal paradise where many of the ideals of the 60s are actually, like, lived by many people is the site of, like, unspeakable genocide against Native people um, who are also still represented and still alive there and have tribal nations in- within the county. Um, it's... Why, like, why is it hard? Why is it hard or considered by certain people in power to be unadvisable, inadvisable or unadvisable? Inadvisable. Inadvisable for an American president or anyone in a position of power and influence to publicly acknowledge the injustices perpetrated against native peoples in this country at this point in our history. Do you know what I'm saying? Like what could possibly be controversial about that? I I, think, I I think if, if there is a bubble, it is one that many people who accept apology and humility as necessary elements of a good life live in. Like, it sounds like you and I both believe that, like, acknowledging things that are done wrong is a necessary thing to do. I still feel bad about shit I did in, like, junior high. Oh, my God. I just visited some friends of mine, and I told them about this time years ago when they asked me to go out for a drink with them and I like fumbled over my words and ended up saying no when I actually meant yes and there was no reason to say no and they were like we don't remember that and I was like I'm so sorry I did that um so yeah but I think what can I say I think many people and I think our rigid ideas of what it means to be a success and what it means to be not only but especially a man in our culture have a lot to do with a deep aversion to acknowledgement of wrongdoing. I think many people feel far too raw to be able to offer something like an authentic apology. It's a hard thing to do. It takes enormous personal strength. And, you know, um, I'm, I'm someone who actually has a lot of, um, sympathetic and sentimental appreciation for the practice of the Christian and Catholic faith. Um, 
but Were I you do, raised Catholic? I was raised, well, I was raised like Catholic, and- but I was confirmed. So I, I will say I was raised Catholic, but I always say I was kind of raised lapsed Catholic because my father had been raised like for real Roman Catholic sure. where he, you know, went to Catholic schools, I think really internalized a lot of the ideas of sort of shame and sin that many people associate with Catholicism. Um, but for my grandparents and for so many ethnic whites like them, right? Um, Catholicism was deeply connected to their Italianness, and just as it has been for Latino people and Polish people and Irish people and many other groups. And so my mom converted to Catholicism when they got married, but that was in her case also kind of sentimental because during the period of her childhood where she was in France, she went to French convent schools, like in Madeline. Why was your and mom in France? Like she... After my grandparents' second divorce, my grandmother um, disappeared for a year and left my mom in the care of my grandfather in Connecticut. And my mom became depressed and instead of going to school, would go and play in the woods all day. And my grandpa was not on the case. And um, then she came back and she saw sort of the situation and she took my mom and they moved to Paris. And uh, my mom... My mom after that was almost always in boarding school, which when I was a kid sounded terrible to me. But as an adult, I realized I think my grandmother, who was a single mom in the 50s, was able to recognize how important the routine and the regimen of that was and how like maybe she, although she was a lot more stable than my grandfather, was not 100% capable of like providing that. Um, how could she send her to boarding school? Like, she's working... Uh... My grandma um, was the only daughter of the first state legislator in Texas who was a Latinx person. Um, who was a what? A, a Latino person. Okay. Um, his name was Jose Tomas Canales, and he was a judge. Um, and he, I mean, she had she had an income of her own, effectively, by virtue of her birth, which was in itself complicated because she was adopted. Um and she knew that she was adopted, and she'd been adopted at the relatively late age of 18 months away from her older sister and mother after her father died. She was adopted by her aunt and uncle. This is quite a life. Yeah. Okay. Um, but then you had, but then like you had this very stable, rooted, yeah, kind of like all American Oak Park childhood. Yeah, I mean, my parents, my and parents, wh- what are do your my parents heroes. do? What do, what do they do? Are they? Are my they... dad is an attorney, um, a real estate attorney, and a broker. Um, and my mom, really, for the most part, was at home with us. Um, she has, like her mother, she's had an income that she's managed, um, but um, pretty much, I mean. Their lives were very different from mine because unlike my mom and my grandma, that's not part of my life. Um, And I feel really lucky that undoubtedly a lot of the privilege of my sister and I's childhood was the result of a lot of a lot of pain that those two women and and those generations of my family went through. Um, And, you know, I mean, like all families, we, we had problems and we had good times and bad. But I just think especially as I, you know, I would like to have kids and I get closer to kind of like figuring out how I would do that. And it's just amazing to me what they did. I mean, we just, we went to these great public schools. We went on these great vacations. We had lots of pets and friends and I was, I was encouraged in my weird artistic thing. And so was my sister. My sister's a theater director who lives in the UK now. Um, it was wonderful. And, um, 
I think one thing I experienced a lot of trepidation about as a parent, especially in our cultural moment where there's, I love all the writing that's coming out from women about motherhood, but it is, it does make it like even more scary. I yeah. think, I mean, it's just, <laughs> for... I can't read that. I can't read about it. I'm living it. I'm like, you know, and my wife, you know, I think when, uh, we were expecting, especially our first, mm-hmm. she maybe read a few books. I was just like, you know what? I'm an animal. I'm going to figure it out. <laughs> like, I, I need more of that. Yeah. I mean, my partner has a lot of that, which I appreciate. Um, but I, I think that, I mean, I think some of it is good because it's artists taking on as a great human experience, just like war parenthood, which has been erased and invisible and silenced, especially in women's voices. Um, but also men. I mean, there hasn't been a great literature of men coping with fatherhood. Um, but I also think that... Um, you know, our society has gotten worse for parents, for kids no and doubt. families. Well, I was just going to say, you know, like your family life sounds kind of like mine. My parents had three kids. They just celebrated their 47th anniversary. Um, I had like super idyllic, like no fighting. I mean, you know, beyond like little weird bickerings, but like, yeah. like very like easy family life to this day, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. And uh, you sort of take it for granted but I also think, like, my dad was the first person in his family to go to college. So was my dad. Yeah. yeah. And he didn't have anything. He didn't come from anything. You know, my grandmother had an eighth grade education. My grandfather was a butcher. He didn't go to college. He might have had a high school degree. And uh, my dad was able from, like, pretty much day one to support, like, out of college, was yeah. able to support, um, like, a single-income single, single income family. What did your dad do? Uh, he's retired now, but he was like a businessman, Yeah, you know? And so just like, he had like that corporate life, like worked his way up. And yeah. I'm like, that doesn't exist anymore. You can't have, unless one parent is absolutely killing it. Right. It, it's a rarity. Well, so my grandparents, uh, my grandfather did not finish high school. My grandmother did. Um, my grandfather, this is my Italian side of the family. My grandfather was a, a fruit vendor and then a restaurateur and then owned an artificial marble factory and finally a um, bathroom vanity outlet store. Okay. And so he was like the archetype of like the self-made man who came from like nothing and through business built himself up. And, um, you know, my dad went to Notre Dame, which for Italian Catholics is Harvard, right? That was, that and was like, like such a big deal when I was a kid. It was such gran- a big deal. My grandfather would be like, you're going to go to Notre Dame. My dad was sort of like, you should go to Notre Dame. Where did like, you go? I went to Colorado. Great. He did bong hats. And my grandfather was like... On University his, of Colorado? Yeah. So on nice. His, on his deathbed, was like looking up at me and I was like wearing a tie-dye and had long hair. And he was just like, <laughs> I think I killed him. <laughs> no, I'm sure he was proud. I mean, maybe, that's like... Maybe. I think that's kind of when I think about the magnitude of human life which is short but also really long like to be able to see like your grandkid go so far from anything you could have possibly imagined hopefully in a positive way like it's it's pretty wild to think about there's no way possible that i could cover as much ground as my dad did first person in his family to go to college to like where he got to i think about that sometimes like i can't be matched yeah i just had too many i have too many advantages yeah um that like he coming from nothing like my dad's, uh, there were four kids in his family. His eldest was uh, the only girl, and she died his freshman year of college. Oh, she no. was killed in a drunk driving accident. It's oh, awful. Two days before Christmas. So he's just like in his first semester of college as like yeah. the first kid to leave this like small like bayou town. 
and then he's home for the holiday break and his sister gets killed. Then he has to like come home every weekend to like tend to his parents. Where did he go to college? He went to LSU. LSU. Yeah. Like that's back. Cause back then it was like free. Yeah. I Which mean, that's another, the other thing. Uh, yeah. It's the exponential growth in the cost of education is terrifying right. to think about. Um, that and yeah, that and just like the way that it's not subsidized, yeah, it's not subsidized. You're expecting young people to take out all this debt burden. Yeah. And, uh, that didn't exist. My grandfather was a butcher and he sent, um, my dad went to, um, LSU. He also got a master's degree on scholarship and then my uncle became a dentist. You can't do that shit anymore without like coming out of school with like crazy, crazy debt. My dad's best friend from growing up also on the South side of Chicago was one of 11 and the dad of that family was a dentist, and he mandated that all the children were going to be engineers or nurses or doctors, and they all became that. Wow. Which, I mean, because there's also the element here of like, you know, lots of people that I went to school with are doctors and lawyers and are living a more homeownery lifestyle. And of course, plenty of people I went to school with are parents already, too. Um, and so I think one of the neatest tricks that you know, capitalism plays on us is I just often feel like personal failure because I didn't somehow become like, I don't know, the imaginary job where you imaginarily make all this money, which doesn't really exist. I mean, you can get a law degree and that won't be true. You can become a doctor and that won't be true. Um, but I, I'm really grateful for my my doctoral education because i mean i'm a, i'm pretty embarrassed to say but it's absolutely true that i really didn't have a political awakening about class and how the economic system works in this country until i got to my phd um and i was like 24 by that point yeah um, i didn't get it until i got to college i was totally insulated from it as a kid i didn't yeah. think about it that was sort of the blessing of growing up in the midwest and I mean, I, you shouldn't, right? I mean, like, I think I well, I do think we owe our children an education about the labor labor movement. You know, in many other countries, the history of the labor movement is the history of the people of that country, and um, that is something that I'm I'm embarrassed I didn't know about. Well, and we've but, let it at we it's been quashed, and we've let it atrophy yeah. way too much. Less than seven percent of labor in the United States is unionized. Yeah, see, and that's like not by accident. And no. I could argue till I'm blue in the face because I know that there are plenty of instances in which unions are corrupted i mean it's a power structure and a hierarchy yeah just like anything else but like fundamentally if you don't have collective bargaining then working people have no leverage absolutely and there's a reason why corporate bigwigs don't want to deal with unions because the negotiations are harder and they have to give away more money yeah it seems so like obvious to me and um it just seems so uh, out of balance and unhealthy for society to have ordinary working people not able to represent themselves in that manner and to fight collectively because, you know, like once they're particleized, then it becomes a very easy game for the people in power. I think you see it in the impoverishment of the imagination of artists in this country too. I mean, compared to many, many other countries in the world, we offer artists basically no support. And if there's no room to dream and there's no space, I mean, even someone like me who, you know, again, very privileged and also hardworking and lucky. And I've been in these graduate programs that, you know, took up the bulk of my life. I, I was always working like three or four jobs when, once I got to like the second year of my MFA, like after that point, I've never not been doing these things and I'm not super high earning in all of them. And many of them are 
directly uncompensated, but like it's it's amazing to think about how we take for granted a system in which the ability to create is sort of, I would argue, artificially held back from us. We're a very wealthy country. There's no reason why artistic expression should be so so meagerly given out. Um, and if someone who, you know, spent seven years in a graduate program designed directly to produce a work of art, you know, still had to really, like, pickaxe her way out of it, um, I mean... Maybe. Well, and you hear stories about, like, you know, like uh, other Western democracies. I'm thinking of European countries like Denmark, like Germany, like France. They subsidize the arts in, some, in sometimes very generous ways. Like, I had a buddy in graduate school at USC who's a poet who mm -hmm. went on, like, multiple summer, uh, like, months-long summer tours with other poets where they're, like, taking the train from town to town and getting paid. Yep. And, like, not, and, like, paid well. And like all expenses are covered by some, you know, you know, state uh, arts fund. And then they get to a town, they go to a bar, it's like packed. People came to see the reading. Yeah. <laughs> he was like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> what did you go to USC for? I did the MPW, the now defunct. Ah, the MPW. I know so many wonderful people from the MPW. It was great. I met a lot of great friends there and I got my book done there and uh, I had a good experience, but it was like... You know, there, there's some uh, scandalous goings on there, but I don't know. I have nothing. I, I really have nothing but good things to say about my personal experience because I just wanted time to write yeah. and I wanted to meet some people, but I really just wanted some time to write. Absolutely. And I don't know how much more an MFA program can do for you if that's what you want to do. Yeah. Um, so it was good and it got me to LA and now I've been here almost, you know, for a long time and met a bunch of people and. I'm going to uh, the Dodgers game tonight with my buddy Milo, who was the so fir wonderful. first person I met at graduate school. Oh, my God. On the first day. It's like a fairy tale. It is. I love it. <laughs> I mean, I, something about L.A. always imbues everything with like this, to me, halcyon quality. Like there is as I love the griminess of this place, but somewhere in that grime is all of this sparkle for me. And I I have felt very reverential of that. There's something that in me is resolved here. Well, um, and I just, I, this is what I was thinking about. Cause remember I was telling you, I was like having all these, like, I love LA thoughts this mm -hmm. morning or, but I was also thinking like, it truly is extraordinary and something to be celebrated for, for all of the superficialities and excesses. Like there's a million holes to poke in entertainment culture, yes. but the fact that music and movies and TV and the creative arts um, are, uh, made, you know, that, that sustains the local economy. It's this, it's the pillar. Yeah. Like, that's awesome. It's beautiful. It could be so much way. Like there are a lot, there are a lot, uh, less inspired economies to, uh, build a town around. Yeah. And it's unique. Like what other town in the world? I, I can't think of one has, has that kind of, uh, structure. And so I don't know, that makes me happy to be here. And like the, kinds of people who are drawn to that, um, you know, to the arts or whatever, the ones who make it out here and not just, not just the media arts, but also visual artists and book, you know, book people. And it brings a lot of different people out. But I think that, that, uh, there's something unique about it. And I think it can be easy for me at times as well to focus on the, the grimier parts of it and to lose sight of the sparkle. Yeah. Yeah. Know? It, I'll tell you, being sent back to Connecticut after seven years here, I mean, it there was an 
you know, yes, the landscape's different and the weather's different, but there's just an ineffable quality here. I always think about something David Lynch said about how the light in L.A. filled him with a feeling of pure optimism. um, In that folksy voice, you know. I love David Lynch (laughs) I do too. (laughs) Everyone loves David Lynch. Yeah, I I mean, just like so many things that used to belong to me only, like llamas and kittens and David Lynch, it's all, you can all get an iron-on patch of all of it now. Um, But that's okay. I'm really glad to see him it's not like he has ever not been doing well but it's been interesting to see sort of the the resurgence of lynch lynchiania as a as a popular stance well i was reading an interview with like steven soderbergh years ago and he was like you know there's very few like truly visionary artists and i think he was talking about cinema but he could be just as well talking about anything and he's like david lynch is like a true visionary yeah well it's so hard to like to get anything truly visionary out there. I mean... Well, I, that's just what I was going to say, is that not only does he have, like, the confidence in his own creative instincts mm-hmm. to make these weird movies, but, like, this is one of my, like, less optimistic or less rosy uh, assessments of Los Angeles and entertainment culture in particular, is that I think, in in a way, like, the greatest achievement of anybody who finds their way through all the hoops of the movie business or the mm-hmm. TV business is not an artistic achievement as much as it's like a social and financial Absolutely. achievement. Like you got to be charming in the room and sell them and you got to connect and go to the parties and meet people and know who's who. And it's like that part of it, I just start to like glaze over. And yeah. I'm amazed by people who can do both and you have to, but then yeah. I also remember in like my time here when I was living here, remember when David Lynch brought the cow out onto the side of the street? He was trying to raise money for like Inland Empire. Yeah. And he was doing these publicity stunts. So like he's always had to do the hustle and I think he's found ways to kind of do it in good humor as much as he can. But, um, you know, I was reading or listening to the audio book of uh, the meditation book that he wrote. Mm-hmm. What's it called? Catching the, the Big Fish. Catching the Big Fish. Yeah. And, it's gr- if you haven't ever heard it, you should listen. It's a good audio book because it's in his voice, and his voice is so great. I give that book to my creative writing classes sometimes. Sure, I mean, I just think it's so the rubber genius, the, the smelly rubber clown suit. <laughs> you know, he's got a lot of like great little turns of phrase. But I want to say that it's in that book, and I could be wrong. Where he talks about a little bit about his history as an artist, and how like he was originally going to be a visual artist, but then he started making films, and once he decided to do film, it was just like a never-ending series of green lights. And I was he like, was, I mean, he struggled a lot as a painter. Um, he was a classically trained painter. There's, they made a great documentary. Um, is it just called The Art Life? I think it's David Lynch, The Art Life. Um, my mother is the most wonderful person in the world. And last year, she was diagnosed with breast cancer, which was a big surprise to all of us. Oh. And I was home right after that news had come down. And we're just kind of pacing around dazed. And she was like, there's this David Lynch documentary I want to take you to go see. And she she and I went to the Music Box Theater in Chicago, which is, you know, this beautiful repertory movie theater. And that's, I mean, that's my mom's move. I remember when my grandmother, her mother passed away, she took me to see John Carpenter's Vampires. And I always think about that. Like, Go to the movies. Also, what was it like, like, you know, your mom has just passed away and you're sitting in the movie theater watching this, like, pretty sexy vampire movie with your 13-year-old daughter who's just like, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, my mom, my mom is doing well. Yeah, um, okay, good. I was going to so, say. So, yeah, no, she, her cancer is has been has been beaten back um but in this film i mean i've read a lot about lynch i've done a lot of research i was one of dennis Lim's early research assistants on his uh lynch biography the man from another place that came out last year um, oh, okay yeah which was like 
at the time. And, and Lynch just published a, a memoir with like, yeah. a, but he did it like in a, in a unique way with like a co-author. Yeah. It's, she said, I have, I haven't read it yet, but she says that like he contributed certain sections and then she did like aggressive archival research and like thousands of interviews. And then we'll write, she'll write sort of a filling in the blank section. And then he fact checked all of them, um, which is interesting. Yeah. I wonder how it is. I mean, back I, then when I was working with Dennis, I felt like, Again, it's not like David Lynch ever stopped being famous, but like there was less attention on him. Um, and now I feel like there's kind of an overwhelming wealth of Lynch stuff. Um, well, and it's like, the, the, like this is the, I was thinking about this this morning. I was in my car driving and Prince came on. And I'm just fascinated by these artists who are like universally beloved. Yeah. Like they're Teflon. It's cool to love them. It's cool to say that you love them. Bowie. Yeah. Bowie. Same thing. Bowie and Prince because they died um george michael mm -hmm. uh david lynch is definitely like, it's like well what filmmakers do you like it's like i like david lynch yeah and it's like somehow like you know it's a way of uh signaling something about yourself i mean i guess it's also like you're authentically a fan yeah but i think people use certain artists like they be, they come to embody like not only like great craft and great art but they also come to embody a sort of like indestructible cool yeah and I don't understand how that happens. I think there's some cultivation to it mm -hmm. by the by the artist. And I think that um, you know the way, especially when you're really a high profile cultural figure, you have to play the media a certain way. Maybe you just have some ineffable cool. It's the kind of thing I will never have. Well, it's it's funny you mentioned David Lynch and cool because I, I have loved him so much in my life that I've emulated certain elements of his personal appearance, which is part of my larger lifelong. I've always kind of wanted not I'm not at all claiming any kind of um, trans or non-binary identity, but like I've, I've envied a lot of the things that men can pull off looks wise. His and hair is incredible. Yeah, I envy his hair. His hair, um, because of David Lynch, I started wearing all of my button up shirts buttoned up to the top button. And I'm seeing my <laughs> friend Chelsea Hodson's book up there. And in there, she has an essay where she talks about how someone says, you know, only slutty girls wear their shirts buttoned up to the top button. And I read that and I was like, well, gee, like I, as a, you know, listener, I am a somewhat large busted woman. And for me, it was always like a triumph. If it was buttoned up all the way, I was like, I will buy this large shirt and it'll be buttoned up because I'm a serious intellectual artist, just like David Lynch. Well, and he wears the same outfit every day, yeah. basically. It's the white shirt buttoned to the top, yeah. khaki pants. And that hair, which I'm sure hair. he would say he does nothing to. I, you want to know something crazy? Because like, I don't have his hair. Very few men do. But like, it's very tempting when you look at it and you become hypnotized by it to be like, I want it. Like, give me that hair. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I want to have, I want to, cause like, it's like, a, it's a fairly it's a great haircut. It is. It's, it's easy to maintain, but yet it's got like a little bit, cause it's kind of cool. Yeah. It's like, it says I'm a little edgy, but like, I'm not like, I don't have shoulder, you know, hair down to my chest or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, like this was years and years ago, uh, probably like over a decade ago. I was in this barber shop on Melrose and uh, I was like, I was always like a little embarrassed, but I was like, I kind of want to have hair like David Lynch. And the girl who was cutting my hair back then was just like, oh yeah, he comes here. And I was like, no, no. And she was like, yeah, he, this is where he gets his hair cut. He comes in and like, <laughs> like he, she pointed across the room and she's like, 
you know, like whatever, you know, like Patricia cuts his hair. And I was like, no, this is where the haircut happens. <laughs> well, it's, you were on the right track. I was on the right track. I was like two chairs away from where David Lynch gets that haircut. But I, uh, I never saw him in there. I always hoped like one day I would go in and I would be like, that's the hair. You know, I've always wanted so badly to meet him. Although meeting a famous person you admire is often like kind of a shit show because it's like this momentary thing and... When I was growing up, I was a really big Smashing Pumpkins fan, and I actually had the like, occasion. Like a good Oak Park girl should be. Oh, yeah. Right? <laughs> I, and I had, on many occasions, maybe three or four occasions, you know, momentary meetings with Billy Corrigan. And every time I just screwed the pooch, you know, yeah. like I, I couldn't, like, get it right. Um, but What was he like? Was he nice to you? I mean, I think twice we're in like conventional fan fan meeting situations, and he was nice. Like 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 um, like the like ra- signings, like, like the radio station. Like yeah. go back and meet the guy. Yeah, okay. He was nice. Um, I remember the first time I was like thirteen and so freaked out, like I couldn't believe it was happening, and I think I maybe was like a little choked up or aphasic or something. I remember he said like something like "It's okay, honey," and I was like. You know, I, it took me hours to get to get my feet back under me. But um, in 2007, my mom and I went to David Lynch Meditation Weekend at Maharishi University of Management in Fairfield, Iowa. Oh. And neither of us had valid driver's licenses at the time. So we took Amtrak to Mount Pleasant, Iowa. Well, why don't you have driver's licenses? <laughs> my mom didn't have like a legit driver's license for close to a decade. She was definitely driving. Yeah. She has one now. Um, because she just didn't want to go to the DMV. <laughs> My mom has that kind of outlaw quality. And I um, I had a really hard time getting my driver's license. My parents, who I've been talking about how wonderful they are, their like, one gap was they like couldn't figure out how to teach me to drive. Both of them, I think, incorrectly remembered learning how to drive in like a weekend. Like They were like, this isn't hard. And I was like, it's hard. It's really hard. And they both also claimed that they'd gotten a letter from the school telling them not to take me driving, which is like... Oh, because of the epilepsy as a child? No, I was I was done with epilepsy oh, at okay. that point. Yeah. For people um, listening, I think we were talking about that before we came on. Yeah. You had, you had ep- epilepsy. I had benign childhood epilepsy, which had... My last seizure was when I was 11. So okay. by the time 16 rolled around. Um, no, it was... They were just, I think they were kind of confused by uh, the compulsory school driver's ed, which hadn't existed when they were young. They thought maybe they were supposed to like totally leave it to the school. And I learned that for as wonderful as they were, they're both like pretty nervous drivers, which I'd never known because they were used to each other. Plus, you can take the train a lot of places in Chicago, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, but like, you know, within your suburb, when you're a teenager, you want to be able to drive. Yeah, yeah. Um, So I failed driver's ed, you know, which is taught by the best, you know, near retirement gym teachers that uh, (laughs) the Secretary of State can throw huge salaries at. Um, uh, I was also kind of like, I was being like inappropriate. So like, okay. During in-car in high school driver's ed, there'd be three of us in the car. And when one person was driving, the teacher would be in the front and the other two would be in the back. And whenever I was in the back with – there was me and these two boys. Whenever, whenever I was in the back with one of them, I would just be, like, fighting off his groping hand. I mean, now that, I, now that I'm, you know, in a whole other lifetime older than I was then, I'm like, oh, Jesus. And I remember I told the teacher because he was always like, are you ticklish? Are you ticklish? And I was like, your hand's on my boob. <laughs> and the teacher was like, well, you're probably doing something to make him act like that. Oh, God. So in retrospect, I have more compassion. But I failed driver's ed. Then I had to take private driver's lessons, which, thank God, were taught by this, like, unflappable, very, like – 
seasoned old african-american guy who was just like like i could like drive a new wall and he was like all right miss i'm just gonna take over now <laughs> like, so i finally passed with him but then i needed 25 hours to get my license basically i didn't get my license till the beginning of my senior year and three weeks later i was in a head-on collision oh. which actually wasn't my fault but the other driver was a world war ii vet who was driving the cadillac he'd bought with his pension from his job as a librarian so it was basically my fault, even if it actually wasn't. He was going 80 in a school zone. You got hit at 80 miles an hour head on? <sighs> yeah. And so then I was terrified of driving. So How, what, what happened to you? I, I was lucky. I, I don't think I even had a concussion. I had a contusion. So I just had like a big bump on my head. Fuck. I had my license plate. My license plate. What were you driving? Tr- what kind of car? I was driving a Saab. Okay. I was driving a Saab sedan. My parents, not a new car, you yeah. know. But I mean, I could just like, it's clearly did okay in a collision. Yeah. No, I was really, really lucky. The car was almost, but not quite totaled. Um, but so when 2007 rolled around, I was just graduating from college and I went to school in New York. So I didn't have to learn how to drive. Okay. I finally got it together as a driver. I mean, I would drive a little bit when I was home, but I finally got it together as a driver when I moved to LA. Um, you got to. But when we went out there, we didn't have a car. And so the people who drove us were this network of like, elderly people who you could like call a number and i mean it was so lynch and some like you know man or lady in their 80s would come and get you and at the end of the drive they'd be like well you just figure out what you want to get give me so my mom was just constantly like handing like ten dollar bills you know because <laughs> fairfield is this wild little town that's all you know i interviewed my friend uh, claire hoffman i interviewed her she was raised there i heard that on your interview with uh, melissa broder yeah so um, claire her book is uh where is it up there i think i just saw it the other day uh, welcome to it's called welcome to utopia park i think is the name of the book but cool. she she grew up there in the maharishi's town in iowa and you know has lived out here um in her adult life but that was an interesting childhood I can only imagine. I have to listen to her episode. Yeah, no, I mean, it's like I was super fascinated by it because I'm like, uh, you know, interested in meditation, not transcendental. I never did the TM thing, but like whatever. It's like, you know, it's got its its place. And I just, too, have been raised in it. And she's kind of, Claire's really funny and dry and has kind of like a, I don't know, she still does it, but she's got like, I think, a pretty sober view. Yeah. Having been in it. Yeah. Uh, You know, there's always, I don't know, there's guru worship or whatever you want to call it tends to yield unsavory things well the conference was a pretty big like sell of tm and it was funny because at least half the people there had no idea who david lynch was which i thought was fascinating like half were people like me who loved him and um I, I started telling this story just to say that many times during that conference, I was in quite close physical proximity to Lynch, and I hauled. This is kind of embarrassing. How tall was he? Oh, he's like six feet tall. He's like a okay. you know average average to tall height like my man. Height. Yeah. Okay. Um, but um, the whole campus is a non-smoking area well, and Lynch is like as a chain smoker yeah. and so he was always showing up in this car that was clearly full of cigarette smoke, and he was with. The woman who he's still married to, Emily Lynch, his last wife. And um, every time it looked like I might be able to sneak in because I'd been hauling around the giant catalog from his art retrospective that I'd been to in Paris that spring, which was this like 80 pound book. And I was my dream was he, that I would have him sign it. 
she was always there and she was like, sit down, you're overtired, drink this water. And I was just like, man, I can't just stride up while like this woman is trying to like care for her like winded genius of a husband. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, it was it was really cool. Donovan was the other famous person at the conference. And my mom and I had listened to a lot of Donovan when I was growing up. Um, and years later, he was on the radio New York NPR talking about TM and I called in and I got on the air and I was like, yo, I would love to do this, but I don't have three grand. Right. And they can, um, they can do like scholarships or whatever. Yeah. Like he if was, your income, like I think they ask you about your income, they can, right. they can adjust the fee. Yeah. And he, he, I mean, to be fair, he was like, but if you paid for it, you'd love it. I did find this thing. Maybe it still exists at the time. You could find it on Amazon. I mean, what, 11 years ago called natural stress relief, which purported to be tm for like 19 bucks i yeah. did that it was Mom. like yeah and they they send Mom. you your little uh what was mine mine was like um uh, or something <laughs> i still sometimes go there when i'm trying to meditate sure. i'll be like hey that that's almost tm right yeah i mean okay so like meditation you can use a mantra like whatever they give you and it's usually a two-syllable deal yeah. right something like that but it's like a nonsense word that you just repeat over and mm -hmm. over again and silently in your head while you're breathing and you just like let thoughts happen or whatever and then sometimes it's like count your breath. Mm -hmm. uh, like, you know, you count to 10 or you count to 20 and then you, you go backwards from 20 down to one. I've been trying to do yoga nidra meditation recently. What's that? Uh, it's, I mean, I just listen to like YouTube videos, but it's like they talk you through feeling every part of your body individually. Oh, that's so nice. It's like though. left hand thumb. But left that, hand I like first that. Finger. I like it too. I it, like inner body meditation because it makes you feel like you can, if you actually feel yourself from the inside out, like I feel um energized by it and healthier somehow yeah i so okay i guess my history with meditation past trying pseudo tm um the identity of like witch is one that's been with me since i was a little girl and it's funny that it's so in vogue now because it was like the site of like my earliest social trauma um what you've been a witch since you were a kid yeah like you feel like a witch yeah i mean it's, and it's something i was always like participating in it didn't come from my family what did it come from Gosh, you know, it wasn't because I watched a movie and was like, oh, that's me. You know, like it wasn't like I watched Snow White and was like, oh, chill. That's me. <laughs> did you ever see the um, movie Teen Witch? No, but I did see The Craft more okay. than once. Teen um, Witch is, uh, it's worth revisiting. It's I, like, it's an old, I think, 80s movie. I'd love to see Teen Witch. And there's a hip hop. Yeah. There's a rap. There's a moment of rapping, <laughs> if I could call it that, <laughs> that lives in infamy. I'm going to, I'm going to check it out. That sounds great. Yeah. No, you know, I got really activated around witchcraft in about 95 or 96 when I was 11. And I remember the bookstore in my town is no longer there, but it was a Barbara's bookstore, um, which was a chain. Sometimes they still have them in airports and it had a great esoteric section and I would go and find the witch's almanac. And it had some like correspondence course for witchcraft that you could send away to Vermont for. My parents were pretty down with almost everything, but they were like, yeah, we're not doing that. Like, <laughs> probably, probably rightly. I, I don't think it was because it was witchcraft, but they were like, this is for like, you know, some like some person in their 20s to do. Right. Um, but I was always I was always my mom, her decorating schemes always involved kind of secular altar making. And I was always kind of emulating that and burning candles and ruining the wallpaper with smoke. And I didn't. What do you mean secular altar making? <sighs> 
my mom loves to cluster different beautiful objects in in these you know on mantles or dressers or tables and okay some of the disassembly of our house to get it ready for sale meant taking these things apart which were kind of like impossible to like pack in any way pictures of you know ancestors and tchotchkes and jewelry and a lot of buddhas and um it just i mean I had had a childhood that was really like mythology focused. And when I say I was what I said before about being raised lapsed Catholic, there was just a lot of openness about spirituality and religion. So I never had the idea that it was like Jesus or bust, you know, like I I really wanted magic to be real and mythology to be real. And so there was a lot of like I loved the Norse myths. I was obsessed with ancient Egypt from like as soon as I could read around when I was two and a half or three until I was 10, that was just all I cared about was Egypt. And Interesting. I just read about it all the time. And I wanted to be an Egyptologist. I eventually took an Egyptology class in college. And unfortunately, like so many things having to do with archaeology, it was just like a little bit too much math. Like yeah. my fantasy of wearing khakis and like being in a tomb, <laughs> you, no one ever tells you how much carbon dating yeah. will require to get you there right. um, or how colonialist that is. But um, it was... It was always a part of me, and when I say it was part of, it was a site of early trauma. I was really excited as a sixth grade girl to be like discovering witchcraft, which to me I think just meant you know what I still believe magic to be, which is the the application of energy and attention to change the present moment. Um, and so I told my best friend about it and other girls, and you know she just had that really like reptilian like social psychopath thing that certain children have where she saw what i didn't see which was that like social division and popularity was emerging and that i think she had an opportunity to become popular if she like threw me to the wolves and so she did and for about a year for that year i was like shunned by those girls in a way that i still am kind of in awe of the coordination of like they'd be sitting in a circle at study hall and I would come and sit down with them, sort of not thinking anything of it. And they would rise as a group and move away. Oh. And it's like, did you guys game this out? Like, were you on the phone last night? I'm so glad that I went through middle school before social media. I can't yeah. even imagine because school was so stressful for me. And I could at least come home and like my nervous system would decompress. And I was sad, but I, I really worry about children now because they can't go home from that stuff right. unless they have like parents who were really good at lowering the iron curtain around the devices. Um, But it just escalated. And, you know, like any kid, I wanted to fit in. I wanted them to like me. But they basically, my former friend was like, Lisa's like a Satanist witch. And she told her mom that. And so the parents kind of got in on it and would, like, take their kids out of my classes. And I still don't, you know, if if any parent who was, you know, had a child at Roosevelt Middle School in 1996-97 is listening to this, I hope you know that, like, you helped me get where I am. Because, like, (laughs) I cannot believe how small-minded or dull some people must have been to, like, buy into a bunch of little girls. And this is before, you know, Mean Girls. This is before any of the books about the culture of aggression among young women. Um, And it was really horrible. And eventually I tried to do as I had... And your parents knew about this? They knew. Um, Again, this was before, I think, we had a cultural conversation about it that 
made anybody think it was worth like talking to the principal about. And at the time I thought the teachers can't possibly know, but now I've had many of my friends who were there with me at the time who watched it, who became like middle school teachers. And they're like, the teachers knew. So yeah, I'm a little mad that nobody was like, Stepped hey, this in. is fucked up. Right. Like, um, I wrote a free write because I was already a big writer and it was a letter to my friend full of kind of impotent little girl threats, but I did not intend to give it to her. And I shit you not, it fell out of my bag. Oh, no. And this boy gave it to her. Oh, no. And then things really got going. Like, I had to go to the principal's office. Um, her mom, like, verbally attacked my mom in a parking lot and called her a raunchy liar. Uh-huh. Which is actually really good, because I've forgotten until this moment. Uh, the only pan my book has gotten called it raunchy yet flat, which I kind of love. <laughs> Thank you, anonymous reviewer. So raunch has been with me since 96. Um, it was just like a real demonstration of how horrible social politics can be. And I guess I did pack it in witch-wise a little bit, although not not that much. I think I just... Especially as time went on after high school, I had less space to practice in. And it didn't really come back into my life as a big thing until when I was living in L.A. And do you know the Oracle of Los Angeles? I do. I had her on the show. Yeah. She was here. Amanda. Yeah. Yeah, I had a witch on my show. (laughs) There's so many great witches in L.A. There's Sarah Faith Gottsteiner. She's really wonderful. She's the author of these moon workbooks. And she has a book coming out from St. Martin's Press. Um and there's Maja de Oost. Um, my, my friend and collaborator, the, the photographer Francis F. Denny, has a show of photographs that's going up in October called Major Arcana. And she traveled all over the country and took pictures of all these witches. Oh, um, cool. I think it's a powerful identity. And it's the practice of meditation and spellmaking and um, card work, which for me has been kind of like the primary means of doing it, uh, has been really helpful for me in some really card dark work? times. Tarot cards, oracle cards. You know how to do that? I do. Yeah. Do you have some with you? I wish I should have brought them. You should have. Um, you could deal me some. I don't know anything about that. It's Well, I learned it kind of out of a little bit of compulsive anxiety. Um, I mean, there were times in my life when I was just doing spreads of cards like all day long while I was trying to write my book and things were pretty hard in my personal life. Um, but I got into this long explanation to say something about meditation, which was around that time, let's say like 2014, I started doing this manifestation meditation. I had found Wayne Dyer, who's another kind of new agey guy. Um, So I love to go to these single use uh, saunas on Coenga and Sunset at this place. It used to be called Cedar House. It's called Sweat Theory now. And I was in a bad way. I I was having a lot of trouble eating and sleeping and I was working out all the time and I would go to these saunas every day and they would offer you like a meditation CD and I'd always just take a different one. And this one was all about like manifesting and I got really into it. And then long after, um, you know, then I just found it on YouTube and would do it like all the time. And I think it actually did help move me forward in my life a lot. But earlier this year, after things kind of really didn't, I hit the wall with more than one desired academic job, and I really thought that this was going to be the year. I was talking to Sarah Faith, who's a great reader, and she was like, 
she was like, what's your meditation practice? And I was like, well, I do this crazy manifestation meditation and I've got all these objects. And I'm, and she was like, no, all right, that's not. She was like, let's try yoga nidra. And it is much better. What is it again? How, tell me what yoga nidra is. It, so it, it's this voice. Most of the ones I find on YouTube are British. And um, they'll talk about. Is it, It's a kind of meditation. Yeah. It's not a it, person. or something. No. Okay. It's, it's often sleep associated or just relaxation and they talk you through the individual parts of your body your fingers and your toes and one of them that i like to listen to has this really like warlocky guy who is like and now image visualization he's just like flame mountain rose and i'm like (laughs) yeah (laughs) i love i love seeing the flame and the mountain and the rose um but yeah that's i mean i think i'm a little type a and so it's always a struggle for me to um like, I understand intellectually what meditation is, but, like, actually sinking into it is pretty hard. And the cards are good for that, but also bad for that, too, because I'm, I'm, not, I'm not being good with my cards when I project too much um, narrative on them. And sometimes the reason why I work with more decks than just the tarot deck is sometimes the, the tarot deck is a little Judeo-Christian and narrative for me. So I have some more abstract ones. Um, but I am being good with them when I just, like, try to perceive them as this weird representational tool yeah no i mean i'm fascinated by like whatever works you know and like all there's all these different modalities and whatever you can use to take yourself out of yourself or out of your like uh, babbling thought brain yeah you know but i was uh i was been reading about this modality called shikantaza which is a form of uh zen meditation i haven't heard of it and you're like like as best i understand it like you're not following the breath and you're not counting the breath. You're just sitting there breathing and you're like ultra focused. Like maybe your attention is on this, like, you know, it's like the pit of your stomach, but basically like two inches below your navel. That's what I think what they say. And you so you place your, your kind of internal physical attention there, but you don't follow the breath. You don't say anything to yourself. You don't count. And you just try to keep your attention there and make your mind like a blank white sheet of paper. Wow. And I, you know, I've been trying to do a little of that. I feel kind of chill just thinking about it, <laughs> which I'm sure I feel more chill now than I would if I actually but tried to do it's it. It's actually hard to do. Yeah. It's actually like in a more advanced, like Soto Zen uh, yeah. form of meditation because there's no, there's no crutch. Right. Like the counting and the follow, like inhale, exhale, all that kind of stuff that you say to yourself internally or like a mantra. Yeah. I think is just kind of a way of sort of tricking yourself into stopping the chatter. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm really lucky because I found therapy and a great therapist really early. So I've had mm. the same therapist since I was 16. So for almost 18 years, wow. um, most of that time we've been talking on the phone cause she's in Chicago. Um, but she's, she's a Buddhist. And she said this thing to me recently that has been so real, which is like, you know, if, if your life is like, if we think about life, like a stream and we're like naturally being carried to the right destination, like few people really want to think of it like that. Like it's a lot of like trying to paddle like frantically upstream and that's definitely me. Um, yeah. So I, I'm hopeful that my life in Mendo will involve more, more, uh, generative meditation because I think that manifestation meditation was kind of wonky in some ways, but I think it's just that I did it so much. But then it, that was also, that became its weakness because it was like I used it out a little bit. Um, well, I think, but I, I do think that there, at least like a, a healthy portion of my faith in any kind of meditative or contemplative practice is in the ritual and in the consistency. Yeah. 
Like there are plenty of days where I sit and I'm like, that was a fucking bust. Like I just sat there and talked to myself the whole time yeah. or like litigated something or, right. you know, worried about something. And then, um, other days it's much better and you do get like quiet and it's like really awesome. But then I just think like, I, I guess what I'm banking on is that like cumulatively over years, if I stick with it and I do, I think I actually do believe, and I would pose this as a question to you. Um, but I think I do believe in the possibility of genuine insight and like uh, liberation and enlightenment. Like I, I, I really want to believe that. I think yeah. people, I think there are people on this planet in human history who have, who have, uh, realized deepest truth, like true, true wisdom. Oh yeah. No, that's not hard for me to accept at all. I mean, the, to me that's, and the, the way that that I know that that is real is the miracle of creativity. I mean, I, I, I've had so many, you know, real nadirs in my life. And yet the, the persistence, like, of, like the witch, the thing in high school or in a, you know, junior high. Yeah. But like, have you gone through like seriously heavy, like experiences? Yeah. yeah. Like losses? Yeah. Can you talk about any of them? Like what are things? I'm thing divorced. Okay. Um, that was pretty bad. I mean, the divorce itself was the culminating event of just a really long, difficult, horrible demise of a relationship. Um, and I mean, my mother was very ill when I was little. And I think in some ways that's kind of an originating like fear or trauma. Um, like with what my mom had, um, had three or four, um, abdominal surgeries before she was ever pregnant. Um, and before my dad, she'd been married for 10 years and had never become pregnant. So she thought she couldn't have kids. And then she married my father and was pregnant within six months. So did um, she, was she divorced? She was divorced. Okay. Yeah. She wasn't married. To <laughs> my mom is 10 years older than my dad. Um, uh-huh. And so she had me and I was a C-section and I think the pregnancy and everything all was okay. Um, but they were, I mean, she was 38 when I was born and it was the eighties and they were all pretty like, you know, okay, you're not going to have another kid. Like this is it. And then she and my dad were actually fairly deep in adoption negotiations for a little boy. And in the same week, um, they found out my mom was pregnant again. And the birth mom called them and was like, I'm not giving up my baby. So there was like this wild three days where they might have had, you know, like inadvertent twins. Um, After my sister was born, well, she had a surgery between me and my sister. So there was some problem with her uterus. Um, But it was repaired. She always says it was repaired into a little football. And that's where my sister came from. Um, My sister was also a C-section. And then she had a hysterectomy a couple of years after that. There was just a lot of... That's a major surgery. Yeah. I mean, there was just a lot of her being in the hospital. Which when you're a little and, kid, is that's no bueno. You know, like it yeah. has an impact. Yeah. She was just gone a lot. Um, and my dad was a really wonderful and devoted dad and he had good help too. So I was in no way like neglected, but I was really close with my mom and I was really scared. And um, like my beloved stuffed animal was named Hospital Cat, because she sent him to me from the hospital. He's a snow leopard. And that was for me, like, even though my mo- my dad was telling me my mom was in the hospital and was okay, it was only actually when I received Hospi that I, like, you believed that she was, yeah. <laughs> of course. <laughs> believed that she was alive. Um, my mom has never been someone who has embraced the identity of having had postpartum. Um, she was also diagnosed at various times with chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia, and she just 
never wanted any of those. I mean, I only learned that much later because my memory, I mean, now I think PPD maybe certainly, or maybe it was just, you know, a lot of physical trauma and healing. Um, She had had a really like crazy childhood because of my grandparents. Well, and that stuff gets embedded. Like, you know, like the the people go through traumas and we all do, I think it's some, in some way, some of us more so than others, but like, I, I'm still working shit out. Oh, yeah. That happened 20 years ago. Like it, the after effects linger and they manifest in all sorts of different ways. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, 33 has been a really interesting age because you start to realize that what aging means is the accretion of all this narrative and you keep it with you. And like, I was never someone, at least I didn't think outwardly, who venerated a cult of youth or who thought, you know, like, oh, you know, like life is so awesome when you're 21 years old, because it's not. I mean, you're like nightmarishly anxious. But um, <laughs> especially having been on this road trip and having had the opportunity to see a couple of friends who I haven't seen in a long time, it was just so strange to realize how all of our lives keep going and how we keep having experiences and we keep just, you know, we, we carry all of it, but like time keeps moving forward. And even if everything's going pretty well, that's actually kind of heavy. I mean, that's that's wild to think about. Like nothing stays, everything changes. And so, I mean, I always have had a really like positive association with both of my parents, but there was a lot of turmoil and heaviness. I mean, my mom was really sick. My dad um, was struggling with that and also with his career. And, um, but you know, it's like, I think back to, because my parents went through stuff too. Everybody does. Yeah. And, um, I'm trying to think of like, like so much of it I was insulated from. And I should also say like, really, we had an unbelievably smooth yeah. ride by comparison to most, but like, I just never felt, uh, that my dad, like, brought stuff home from work yeah like i know he was probably at the office like stressed out and like he was this guy like my entire life was like up at five in the morning out the door and like in the office by eight yeah you know like he was gone and uh but i just i never got a sense of of like work stress from him he didn't come home and like bitch about it at the kitchen table or anything you know and so i was sort of like blissfully insulated from it all and that was by design i don't think he wanted to unload unload on his like eight-year-old son my my grandma adeline lacasho had this like hilariously uh like italian grandma thing that she would say which was life at its best is very difficult and when i was a kid i was like way to be a bummer grandma or nanny i should say but now i'm like that's so true (laughs) she nailed it (laughs) um and but I also think there's so much beauty in that. I mean, a lot of the the years of difficulty in my previous relationship taught me I would have these kind of like cult-like realizations and beliefs in concepts like grace. Um or I have a friend who taught me the the Greek Christian theological term taumazon, taumazon, which means wonder at something higher. And I think to a certain extent, um, I fetishize those experiences because I, you know, I, as I don't think I will be the only person who has ever had this experience. When you love someone and you're in a relationship that's hurting you and you can't figure out, like, why those two things exist at the same time. Um, it, I mean, there was a lot of clarity, not not about what to do about that, but it was just like daily life took on this crystalline quality. And um, it, it had a lot of really bad, weird, hard things in it that I think were really unhealthy for me. But I became 
enormously grateful for all of these small moments. And I try always to maintain that because my life is a lot easier and better now. And I'll get like flustered about being late or like, you know, concerned about is my book going to get reviewed in the Times and I'll get on Twitter and like worry about the publicity for my book. And it's like all you ever wanted your whole life was for your book to come out. And now it's out. Yeah. And like three years ago, four years ago, I like was experiencing this thing that I'd never had a problem with before, which is where like I just had totally lost my appetite and it was completely terrifying. Um, But I think transcendental experiences like that, whether they're positive or negative, they you can that's to me a big part of why writing is so important to me because you can't stay in it you can only recreate it through language and metaphor um because you your system can't endure it you can't live your whole life just like even if there's an ongoing stress that you can't get out of like a like a failing marriage you can't stay in it the whole time no like it like that's one of the things like you sort of like I lean on because I I do have an ongoing stress with my son's health and it's like what's in that's not going to go away yeah I could be permanently upset about this, but the truth is that like, even if I wanted to be, I couldn't. Yeah. It, it you just can't sustain a mood good or yeah, bad. Exactly. As a human Everything being. is transient. Everything changes. And that too seems like grace. Yeah. And, um, and it's also what enables us to have senses of humor and to appreciate the strangeness of human existence, which is why I write because life is so strange and funny. Yeah. And, um, I'm I'm not interested in narrativizing it as anything other than what it is, which means that, you know, sometimes things that I write or say will will not resonate with other people, but that's okay. Like yeah. that's yeah. that's the gift of being able to communicate is being able to take in multiple points of view. Well, and I also think like speaking to what you were talking about, like difficult experiences you've been through and how you feel a certain sense of gratitude to those experiences. Like culturally, I think in America in particular, like, you know, Western culture, American culture, like we have, we place this huge uh, value on youth and beauty, often superficial beauty on wealth. And we equate wealth with success. And you know how we can have our value systems all out of whack. Um, but we're also like insulating ourselves from pain. Yeah and death we don't like to look at it we hide it we yeah. put the bodies in a body bag you never see them they're in the hearse it's not like you know in india where they're like the corpses are laid out and, right you know or the way it used to be on the nightly news during vietnam yeah i mean i think this is one of the one of the great uh violences that has been done to our imagination has been to deprive us of our dead our war dead in this country well um, yeah and and so i guess like the point that i was going to make is just that like certain cultures like i'm thinking of a tibetan culture like people actually pray for a difficult life because yeah. they, uh, they, I think know that, um, with suffering comes, uh, a kind of holiness or clarity or hopefully can, you know, you meditate on the image of your body rotting yeah. and, and disappearing. I mean, the total dissolution of the self, I, you know, after I went through my divorce, I thought, okay, that's it. Like, that's the worst thing. Like <laughs> right. there were a couple of like days in there where I was just like, and I knew it while it was going on. And then less than a year later, my mom got cancer. And I was like, wow, this thing is also the worst thing in a totally different way. And um, both of those things were really humbling experiences. And it was both of them had elements of like being on fire. Like it was just like you're like in it and you're just like, I can't believe this is happening right now. Um, And I can't get out. No. Like it's it's, it is my reality. There's only in it. Yeah. and. And so I feel so grateful 
I mean, it just makes you, you know, like everything seems like a little miracle then, you know, like the sun comes up in the morning and um, you, you, you talk to somebody that you love. Um, I've always been like, you know, fairly like anxious and depressive, although I also feel really lucky in my experience of those things because I have been so much more capable of dealing with them than so many people that I love and are close to. And I don't well, mean... But you've also, like you said, you've been in therapy since you were 16. Yeah. And I don't mean the language there at all to suggest that it's a matter of dealing with it or being capable. I just mean like I, I've been close to so many people for whom it's debilitating in a way that my experience has not been debilitating. But well, you also recognize that can change at any time. Yeah. I, and I, I'm, I, I'm with you. Uh, but I also feel like, you know, you've had, uh, like you said, you had a, a privileged youth and a supportive family. Like you're a lucky, a lucky birth, basically yeah. supportive yes. together parents who were there for you and who, uh, you know, you've had a therapist since you were 16, like just access to good mental health care. It's everything makes it such a huge difference. And so like I can hear in talking to you and I've had other people on this show who I think have like, uh, an accelerated vocabulary, around their suffering yeah. because, and I think therapy can provide that. I think meditation can help. I think deep reading can help, but I think also just like being in it, yeah. you know, or maybe being inclined to it or being maybe sensitive to, uh, one's own suffering or the suffering of others and finding that to be like a very curious problem, you know, is something that I think can generate it. But, um, I guess what I'm trying to say is that for all the difficulty that you've been through, I can hear in talking to you, that you have like a pretty good amount of strength and uh an ability to to engage with it and deal with it that not everybody either has the luxury of like especially with regard to care and like yeah. having like somebody to talk to and bounce things off of but also just like an inclination and i want you to weigh in because you've been in uh, therapy. I've never done therapy. What? No, I should. It's on my list. Therapy's so good. <laughs> I know, I know. But, but here's what I would say about therapy. I'm like the biggest therapy proselytizer yeah. and I have had many friends go to it and had good experiences. So that's good. But if you don't get a good therapist, yeah. that's, some, I mean, I've, I have a friend who I know would love some therapy and like his attempts, like, you know, the first therapist he went to had like Fox news blaring in the lobby and he was like, I'm leaving. <laughs> and the, the second therapist, like, I mean, th I'm a little more woo woo than him. So like, I think I would have been okay if I sat down and they asked me this, but the second therapist was like, so were you a cesarean delivery? And he was like, this is bullshit. <laughs> like, and cause there's different modalities. Um, so yeah. Um, but uh, like, yeah. just so I don't forget, yeah, like, I can sometimes look at people in my life and it's always very easy to see this in others in ways that we might not be able to see it in ourselves where I'm like, you could really, you, you, you could use some care yeah, so or some self care. Like yeah. it doesn't necessarily have to be therapy, but it has to be like, like take care of yourself Yeah, and they won't. And then I've, I've, I can get frustrated cause I'm very like kind of type a, or at least like motivated to take care of myself. Yeah. Like, I'm not going to just let it fester. I'm not going to pretend it doesn't exist. I can't pretend. I do not have that ability. Like, I can't repress, I don't think. Mm -hmm. um, and then I'll, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine once and she was like, you know, when you're depressed, you like, don't just tell people to go exercise. <laughs> and like, I get that. Because some people are like so fucking depressed, they can't move. Right. But I guess my question or like, 
the where I get puzzled is like, what's the line between having somebody in your life that you care about who needs care and wanting to sort of like give them a kick in the ass or like help them yeah. versus like knowing when to leave well enough alone and respecting how they feel and so on, you know? Well, I think it has a lot to do with what the terms of your engagement with that person are. Like if it's your friend who you see however many times, maybe a month or even a year, yeah, then maybe they're, uh, inability or refusal to take better care of themselves doesn't have a dramatically negative impact on your life. And maybe it's just a frustrating thing. And you are that person who sees them and wishes better for them. And that is hugely transformative. I mean, I I definitely am close to a lot of people who for years I've been like, please just think about this. And then like eventually something changes and just watch this YouTube video. It, yeah, just, it's called yoga. What is <laughs> yoga it called? Nidra. It's called yoga Nidra. Um, so, but if it's like your partner, um, I think that that's really different because I do, or, you know, your child, I, th- I think people have a responsibility to each other. And yeah. I mean, I can only imagine how thorny that is in the parent-child relationship because you're also the caregiver or like with an adult child, I can't even imagine. But, you know, it's something that I've grappled with a lot because it's like no one wants to be unhappy. It's not anyone's fault, so to speak, that they're unhappy or struggling with mental health. Um, but at the same time, we were not made to suffer. We were not put on earth to endlessly bear the suffering of another. Um, and everybody makes a different decision in their relationships. You know, there are people whose parents or loved ones or lovers or kids are never going to be, you know, on a scale of one to 10, like an, an 11 of happiness and sunniness. Some of it's, some of it's just like you're hardwired for it. Yeah. You're, you know, some of it's like truly just genetic. Like I had yeah. a, I have a friend who is just like endlessly sunny and bouncy and happy, like pretty much all the time. Yeah. Also has like some passive aggressive, like subterranean <laughs> anger. Like there, I think there's yeah. always like two sides of that coin, but like on balance is unbelievably positive, happy, energetic yeah. person. And I think, and you know, uh, with like her parents, you see like, oh, so are they. Yeah. Some of it, I guess, is like nurture, but a lot of it's nature, I think. I mean, I think if you care about someone and you're close to them, it's about trying to create the right circumstances for them to be their best self. Yeah. And Because um, it's like the question of like, well, do I get my kids into meditation? I'm like, right. I'm like really leery. I sort of tried it with my daughter when she was like three and like we would pretend, you know, at night before bed just because like we don't have any church or anything. And so I'd be like, let's do like, we'll do for two minutes. We'll close our eyes. And then after a while, she'd sort of be like, I don't want to do that, dad. And I was like, okay, I'm not going to, I'm not going to push it because I don't want her to like suddenly like internalize it as like this onerous burden. Talking about meditation reminds me, so like my, my 18 and a half year old cat just passed away last year and um, I had this really wonderful experience with her. I was trying to meditate and she was walking around me in circles meowing and I was like, this is what meditation is. I will valiantly resist this meowing cat. <laughs> and then she got quiet and I was like, yes, yes, I've done it. And then she tapped me on the back because <laughs> she was like, what's wrong with her? And I always think about that. Like whenever I'm feeling too like valorized in some like spiritual thing that like life continues. Um, I think what I would say, like, because I think about that too, like, you know, with my imaginary children, I would want them to have some kind of experience of the divine, but I I would never want them. Like sometimes I'm like, I'll take them to church because like, 
I'm lucky. A lot of what I got from church was like the majesty of like the theatricality and the costumes and the incense and everything. Like I dug that. That was good. And I I totally dodged the like you know the guilt. Masturbation the is a black mark on my soul, right? <laughs> like I was like, no, that's See, that's I got all the for shame. God. I got cardinal sin. I remember distinctly like sex before marriage is a cardinal sin, and God does not forgive you for a cardinal sin. And like you know, it wasn't like my parents were hammering me with like that kind of stuff. No. But it definitely sticks. You got to be really careful. Like, I don't think I would actually expose a child to it because no. um, I think it's actually child. I mean, inadvertent. Yeah. Not intentional, but it's a it's a very abusive yeah. thing. To yeah. Do well, because you don't know what anyone adult or child takes from anything and experience you give them. And it was just um, some fucking lady in CCD. <laughs> CCD. <laughs> God bless. Yeah. The number of times I've had to explain CCD and like, people are like, what does it stand for? And I'm like, counsel. It's of not some like, theolo- it's not some, like theologian who no. handed this down to me. It's like a volunteer. I had a CCD teacher who told me that we should love Jesus more than our parents. And if we didn't, like we were doing it wrong. And yeah. I was like. I can't believe this. It's, irre- <laughs> like, it's irresponsible to be yeah. putting kids in that situation. But I mean, you know, one thing I would say, my experience being epileptic as a kid actually set me up really well for my experience being bullied really badly. Um, it's funny that we have this word bully now because I never thought what was happening to me was that I was being bullied, but it's the best way to like explain it. Um, but like the kids were not nice about the epilepsy and I don't think they would have even known because... Um, the worst time in my epilepsy, I was gone every two minutes for 10 seconds, and that was second grade. And But they were petty mall seizures. So unless you were, like, talking to me, you wouldn't notice. Like, I was just sitting in my desk. Um, but the teacher... When you were walking around, would it happen, too? Like, in motion? Know, I don't remember, like, collapsing or anything, so I guess not. But that's what I've been told. I have all my medical records from that time. Um, and I remember going to the doctor's... My parents did such a good job of making it seem like I was an initiate into like the coolest like intellectual club because I was an epileptic because so many famous artists and great people have been epileptics. Um, That's how I'll talk about it with my son. This is awesome. (laughs) I I mean, I still kind of think it was awesome. You know, I mean, the way they explained it to me is your brain works so fast that there are lightning storms and, you know, sometimes like the power goes out and like that made perfect sense to me. Okay, good. Especially and, in the Midwest, because there actually are yeah. lightning storms. There aren't any here in Los Angeles. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> you you might have to show them some videos. We'll do some YouTube. It'll be fine. <laughs> um, but at the time, like with my public school, it was like a community thing where like the parents knew who the teachers were and you would kind of like feel out who taught what grade. And then a lot of people would like ask for their kid to be put in that teacher's class and they'd normally be honored. And I remember my parents wanted me to be in this teacher's class because it was known that she had an adult daughter with epilepsy. And they were like, oh, great. Like, I, I didn't have an IEP or anything. I wasn't I wasn't seen as having a, a learning disability if or, you know, a different learning style. If I was older, who knows? But also, I think uh, a lot of the legislation and, and practice around those things has really shifted yeah. since then. Um, but the idea was just, you know, it'll be nice to have this teacher because she'll, like, keep an eye on Lisa. Okay, and that sounds good to me. She, at the beginning of the class, showed them some film strip, like our whole class from like 1954 or something about epilepsy, that just scared the shit out of the whole class because it was like adults foaming at the mouth and having convulsions and it was like you know like pull their tongue out you know like and the kids were just like and it's like and Lisa has it. There was a kid in my junior high who had grand mal seizures and uh, Sam, I can still see him and like kids are cruel man we would play yeah. dodgeball and i remember he would be out there and people would try to peg him and Aww. some some one day a, a, he got hit so hard that he had a seizure 
Oh no. Yeah. Oh my and God. Brutal. Brutal. Yeah. In, in gym class, I, I remember the one thing I wasn't allowed to do was we had some like, I can't believe we were doing this, but like gymnastics or something. And they were like, yeah, no parallel bars <laughs> for you. Yeah. But um, after that, the, the kids horse. just like really, I think I, we did have the, the horse. Sure. I liked it. Um, but the kids really like, that was my first experience of some shunning. And I look back and I'm like, you know, I remember that teacher is a fairly elderly woman and she probably just didn't know any better but it's like holy fucking shit like you could have also rectified that like you could have like are you so checked out as a second grade teacher that you don't notice that a room full of seven-year-olds suddenly treat like you know the epileptic child as if they have a communicable disease um but i i won my first writing award two years after that for writing an essay about why i would never do drugs for dare because (laughs) i had had epilepsy and so i didn't need to be having any chemically induced transcendent experiences because you know i've I've got a lightning storm going on in here i don't need that shit (laughs) um i remember i got a stuffed animal the dare lion the darren i was pretty pretty pumped you still have Uh, it Maybe, maybe not somewhere. Okay. I had this, my, I had this scuzzy first boyfriend and, um, Josh, if you're listening, I know you're a grown up now, but you know, <laughs> he had like a dare t-shirt, like a giant dare t-shirt that he wore, you know, ironically, he uh-huh. was 15, but then like somehow it ended up at my house. And then for a long time, my dad just had it and would wear it. And it was always kind of ambiguous. <laughs> like it definitely wasn't like he was wearing it like the popo, but it was also like, <laughs> I don't know. I I haven't thought about that in a long time. Um, So I I have to let you go soon. Yes. But I want to talk to you about your book. Yes. Like your book uh, takes place in Denmark. It takes place in rural northern Denmark. Have you spent time in rural northern Denmark? I have. Yeah. Um, So my my ex-husband was a Dane. Um, He immigrated to this country so that we could be together. And it bears mentioning here on the record that... Although the book is about Denmark and explores certain expressions of Danish xenophobia, um, the book is not autobiographical beyond the fact of, you know, I have been an American in Denmark and the the Danes in the book are not representative of the Danes that I was close to. It's because um, I, I, I have like this idealized vision of Denmark as like the happiest country on earth. And we and, talk about that a lot in the book. Yeah, um, you know, Denmark take is... Take it a, apart is a place where social welfare functions very well. And um, people are not homeless or bankrupt in Denmark because they can't pay their medical bills or because of crippling student debt. Um, But it's also a country that has really, really struggled to assimilate its immigrant and refugee population. And Denmark, like like the two other Scandinavian states, Norway and Sweden, has had an admirably open-door policy, but increasingly they've become the most xenophobic in both their policy and in their culture. There was an article in the Times a couple months ago about how uh, in Copenhagen, there are now these like ghettoized zones and children who are growing up there are required to receive a set number of hours of instruction in Danish culture a week, which basically means forcing Muslim children to learn about and celebrate Christmas. Um, And young people in these areas can be ankle monitored. I mean, it's, it's really grim stuff. Uh. Um, and what I found interesting was for such a liberal seeming country and a country that has a hallowed reverence for, uh, the American civil rights struggle. Um, they make no bones uh, about their antipathy for visible difference. So, 
many of the, uh, you know, immigrants that they've received are Muslims, and they practice their religion much, much more visibly than the largely atheist but culturally Lutheran Danes do. And um, they're, they can be pretty ardent about the idea that the social welfare doesn't work if everyone doesn't believe the same things. Mm. Um, they also don't have birthright citizenship, um, which is it kind of mind-boggling for an American to think about the ramifications. I mean, you can have been living in the country for a couple generations and still not be a citizen. Um, and, you know, there's a list of names. Are you a Danish citizen now? No, you're I'm not. not. Okay. Um, there's a list of names that are approved for Danish people to give their children. And, you know, it includes names. What? Oh, yeah. And it includes names you might Is imagine. Brad on there? <laughs> you could probably get away with Brad, but. Um, with like an umlaut above the A? You have to apply if you want to name your kid something not on the list. So well, think that's about fucking it. weird. You know, like um, a, a name. A, uh, basically, you know, a typically Danish name like Hans will be on the list, but Fatima might not be. Okay. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, to me, it was just a paradox because coming from the United States, I assume that we all are racist in one way or another. I assume that we all bear this baggage. I assume that we understand that our country is built on blood and oppression. But I also believe in, you know, sort of the beautiful fiction of of heterogeneity as the as the original intention of this place. I believe in the idea that our diversity is what makes us strong. I don't think that the idea is a fiction, but I think that I don't I mean I I think it's a happy accident that the founding members of this country wrote it in a way that, you know, it can actually reflect the the values that I think are correct for a nation. Yeah. Um although there's plenty of people trying to argue those laws in a different direction. And Danes um don't have any veneration for diversity. It frightens them. I'm making broad sweeps. You know, there are many. They're like, we're all blonde and hot. Let's not ruin this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and no, obviously there are lots of critically thinking and engaged Danish people. And uh, certainly I was always welcomed and treated with incredible kindness. And my, my you know, my my former Danish family members. You could pass for um, Danish, though. It was well, an interesting experience because I... I was often perceived as a Dane until I opened my mouth. Um, and yeah, I mean, it just, it held up a mirror. So I wanted to write about, I mean, I wanted to write a book in which woman's interiority was the plot, but I also wanted there to be more than that going on. And so this question of race and belonging and identity became really central. I was really inspired by The Flamethrowers by Rachel Kushner, which is just like the best novel ever written. Um, and, and it's very much a novel of interiority, but so much happens too. So much is politically engaged. Wow. Well, I'm, I've had such a good time talking to you. We're at like at a, an hour, almost two hours. Wow. Yeah. I'm so honored. Congratulations to you. Thank you. Thanks for coming in here and being such a uh, generous guest. Uh, are you working on another book? I am. I have two completed books, which um, I think my editor is looking at right now. So it'd be great if two they, others. Yeah, if okay. they're short story collections. Um, okay. So I would love it if one of those came to pass. Um, and then I have a, another novel in the works about the female heir to a totalitarian regime. You're a busy woman. I'm doing my best. Uh, good luck in Mendocino. Thank you. All right, folks. There you go. That is Lisa Lacasho. Fun conversation with her. Her debut novel is called Open Me. It's available from Grove Atlantic. 
Lisa Lacasho. You can find her on the World Wide Web at lisalacasho.com. She tweets uh, at uh, Senza Flash. That's her handle. At S is in Sam, E N Z A Flash. Lisa Lacasho, the debut novel, one more time, is called Open Me. Go get your copy right now. Do that. Thanks to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total, as always, for the theme song music. Thank you to Cigarette Royalty for the interstitial music. If you would like to write to me, if you have something you need to say to me, the address, the uh, email address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. If you would like to support this program, it is a listener-supported program. Your support makes a difference. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Oh, and uh, don't forget about the Other People app. There's an app. Did you know that? This show has its own official app. The app is free, just like all of the episodes of this program are free. You can listen to everything for free. You can get the app for free. Take advantage of that. Get the free stuff. If you want the free stuff, it's free. The free stuff is free. So I'm going to be in Washington, D.C. next week on a business trip and uh, kind of excited about it. I geek out over uh, history and politics and all that stuff. I have not been to Washington, D.C. in a long time. More than 20 years, I think, it's been since I've been there. So I will hopefully be able to find some time to kind of walk around. I want to go to the Lincoln Memorial. I want to see the new MLK Memorial or, uh, you know, monument. I want to go stand outside of the White House. Do some chanting. Who knows what'll happen? I could witness history. I mean, and I'm not even kidding. You just don't know anymore. Anything seems possible. Both good and bad. You just gotta kinda take it one day at a time. Alright, well I'll talk to you again soon. Right? Next week? Okay. <laughs>